0: Hi, I'm Tyler Saltsy, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you this morning to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13 this morning. Our Advent series, we've been looking at other birth accounts. You know there are other birth accounts in the Bible, not just the birth account that we think of when we think of Christmas, not just the birth account of Jesus, although that is the birth account. There are other birth accounts in God's Word, and so it's good for us at times to go back to those other birth accounts because I think these accounts actually help us understand Christ's birth account that much better. It gives us a bigger, fuller picture of when Jesus Christ came into this world. And so this morning, we are Judges 13 and the birth of Samson. Can we learn from the birth of Samson? What does that teach us about the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, let's start where we always must start, with reading chapter 13 of Judges. So would you stand with me this morning as we read God's Word together? Judges chapter 13. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor razor. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask me my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son, called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahane between Zorah and Eshto. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority. Passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever cried out to the Lord? Have you ever cried out to the Lord? Have you lifted up your voice in in distress and despair to God? If you are, you're not alone. The Bible speaks often about crying out to the Lord in certain moments of our lives. Crying out to the Lord who will hear you. When we cry out to Him, we are crying out to a person, a person who hears us. And a person powerful and strong enough to do something about what is going on around us or going on in us. Over and over again in God's Word, you hear people crying out. So let's just take a quick survey here for a moment. All right? This idea of crying out in God's Word. Exodus 2. 23-25, through during those days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Exodus 17-4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Numbers 20, 16, and when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Deuteronomy 26, 7, then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. First Samuel 7, 9, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. 2 Samuel 22.7 In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came up to his ears. Second Chronicles 14.11 And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O oh Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Psalm 3, 4. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Psalm eighteen six. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry reached up to his ears. Psalm 27, 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud and be gracious to me and answer me. Psalm 32. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help and you have healed me. Psalm 107, 6, 13, 19, 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Psalm 131. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Isaiah nineteen, twenty. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors. He will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. Jonah 2-2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. That's not even an exhaustive list. That's just a few But over and over and over again, we see the people cried out to the Lord, and He heard them, and He answered them. Crying out to the Lord is not merely a common theme in the Bible, it's a common theme in our lives. (laughs) It's common for the people of God to cry out to the Lord. If you're a Christian, crying out to God should not be seen as an extracurricular activity. Know it's something you will be doing, and you will be doing it often. This brings us, however, to the book of Judges. The period of the Judges arrives after Joshua. So Joshua replaces Moses... There in the wilderness, Joshua brings the Israelites into the promised land. They cross the river Jordan, they come into the promised land, and then begins the conquest of the promised land. And as they gain that land, they begin to divide the land for the various tribes of Israel. And after the death of Joshua, as the generations move away from Joshua, the people of Israel begin to sin. Having failed to completely, uh, fail to complete the conquest of the land, they begin to forsake the Lord, and they begin to do what's evil in the Lord's sight. And the book of Judges is filled with these cycles of what Israel does. So these cycles that we see over and over and over again, where the people sin, they do what's evil in God's sight, they cry out to God, because after they sin, the Lord sends an oppressive army, foreign army, over them to defeat them. To enslave them. So they cry out to God and God raises up a deliverer. God raises up a judge to deliver them from their oppressors. And then there is rest and peace for the people as long as the judge lives. But as soon as the judge dies, the cycle starts all over again. And it's here in the book of Judges that we see this theme of crying out to the Lord over and over again. Here's what we read in the book of Judges. 3.9 When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. 3.15 Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. 4.3 Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel. Cruelty for 20 years It was during the time of Deborah and Barak. How about Judges 6-7, during the time of Gideon, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, or Jephthah in 10-10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So here it is in the book of Judges. With each major account, each major judge in the book of Judges, there is this crying out that's taking place among the people because they are being oppressed on account of their sinful ways. They cry out because they're in distress. They cry out because they have felt the burden of their sin because of the punishment they are receiving and they desperately need relief. But what do we get when we get to this next major cycle with Samson? What's the first verse say there? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. What's missing? There's no crying out. There's nothing No calling out to God for help. No asking God for divine intervention. No repentance. No remorse for what they had done. No asking for relief. Absolute silence on on the part of the people. And then I want to add to that one more tidbit of information. They were given over by the Lord to the power of the Philistines for how many years? Forty years. Let's just go back to the rest of the book for a second. Before the first judge, Othniel, Israel was oppressed for eight years. Maybe you should write these down as we go along, help you remember. They were oppressed for eight years with Othniel before he came. Before Ehud, Israel was oppressed 18 years. Before Deborah, Israel was oppressed 20 years. Before Gideon, Israel was oppressed 7 years. Before Jephthah, Israel was oppressed 18 years. You've been keeping track? 18 or 8, 18, 20, 7, 18. None of those numbers are near 40. The closest one is half, 20. The people of Israel at various times experienced oppression for these amounts of time and then they cried out to the Lord, Lord, we cannot bear this oppression any longer. We cannot bear this despair any longer. Lord, the darkness is too great. Lord, come to our aid. Lord, come to our rescue. Lord, save us, we pray. Please do something. But in chapter 13, there's no crying out, even though... They have been oppressed double the longest period beforehand, before this in the book of Judges. And that difference is meant to tell us something important. What am I doing with this explanation? Why are we going through this? Because this is teaching you how to read the Bible. Because the Bible will often do this. It will establish a pattern. And you will get used to the pattern. And then, all of a sudden, the pattern is shaken up. All of a sudden, something is different. All of a sudden, in this case, something is missing. We call that a zone of turbulence. When you fly an airplane, everything is going along smoothly, and all of a sudden, you hit a rough spot, and the plane begins to bounce and shake. Something's different. And when something is different in the zone of turbulence, we should sit up and take notice because it's important. So what might... This zone of turbulence here, teach us, with no crying out to God, even though they've been oppressed for 40 years, such a long period of time, it tells us this. The people of Israel had resigned themselves to this kind of life. They had resigned themselves to the oppression. They had resigned themselves to the hardship. They don't even think God can do anything about it. Think, the one nation who knows the one true living God, the one nation who actually has a God who can do something and is powerful enough to do something and is in complete control. After all, he's the one who gave them over to the power of the Philistines. Surely he can make it stop. But they do not cry out to the Lord. How many people in our world have resigned themselves to such oppression? How many people in our world have resigned themselves to such misery? How many people have resigned themselves to despair and darkness? They say, well, this is just the way it's going to be. There's nothing to be done about it. I might as well just try to make the most I can get out of this miserable life. I might as well try to do everything I can to ignore the misery, make me forget the misery that's here. That is a frightful state, my friends, for those who resign themselves to that. It's a completely desperate state, and those who are in it do not even recognize it. They're blind to it. They have resigned their lives to it. How frightful for the unbeliever, but unfortunately, how even Christians can sometimes fall into this trap. How often we can give ourselves over to despair. Resign ourselves to say, well, it's just the way that life is going to be. There's nothing that's going to change. I will just have to go along with it. How it can be true, like Christian in the book of Pilgrim's Progress where John Bunyan describes Christian as one who is caught by this giant named Despair, to be thrown in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, and there is frequently beaten by giant Despair and brought to the brink, all the while the giant is saying, give up, it's not worth it, you'll never get out of here, you'll never be free of me, just give up, resign yourself to this life. But the good news is, my friends, we don't have to listen to that. We do not have to give in to that. We do not have to resign ourselves to a life of despair, a life of oppression devoid of God, a life of darkness and gloom and doubt. No, because we know the God of the universe who created all things, controls all things, and owns all things. And not only can he do something, but he has done something. Something miraculous, something marvelous, something great and spectacular, something that has changed the whole course of history, something that provides light to the people who are sitting in darkness, something that provides hope to the hopeless, something that helps those who are utterly helpless, something that expressed the greatest form and purest form of love that mankind has ever known. And he gives us a glimpse of it here in the birth of Samson. How is God going to bring people who have resigned their lives to misery, oppression, chains, despair, and darkness? How is God going to get people like that out of where they are? How is God going to free them, release them, conquer the oppressor, vindicate them, and show himself to be the all-powerful victor? We see it in these verses. And so let's discover that together. Four things this morning. Number one. You can follow along in your outline there if that's helpful. God superintends a supernatural birth. God superintends a supernatural birth. Have you ever been waiting for an invitation? You think that you might be invited somewhere for something, to do something, but you haven't you haven't officially been invited yet. You're still waiting. You wonder. Well, I thought this was going to happen, but they haven't said anything yet. Should I say something? Should I just invite myself? Here's some good news for us this morning. Good news for all mankind. God is not waiting for our invitation in order for him to act. The fact that the people at this time did not cry out to the Lord for help didn't keep God from acting. It didn't keep God from doing something. He didn't need people to cry out to him before he acted. He doesn't need an invitation from us in order for him to act. And it should be comforting because it tells us that God knows what we need even when we don't know what we need. God knows what to do even when we did not see that there was something that could be done. And God perfectly knows, God perfectly sees, God perfectly acts and intervenes, and He does not need permission from us to do it. That is grace. That's grace that God would act and move towards people and with love and mercy, don't even know that they need it, don't even want it. If you think that God needs your permission, and that it is your permission that controls God, you have an absolutely wrong view of God. If you think that you yourself have given permission to God to come into your life, you think that you've given Jesus Christ permission to be Lord of your life, then I would say to you that you've absolutely got it dead wrong, my friend. No, God already owns your life. God is already sovereign over your life. God is al- Jesus Christ is already Lord. He doesn't need your permission for any of those things. What he does call for is for you to believe in him, to follow him, and to obey him. Submit yourself to him. Put your faith in him. And you are only able to do that because God erupts upon the scene of your life, just like he erupts upon the scene in Judges chapter 13. Things are going along and all of a sudden, God does something. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. What woman? The wife of Manoah. Manoah was a man, lived in the city of Zoar. He was a Danite of the tribe of Dan. What do we know about this woman? She's barren. She has no children. We don't know how old she is. Don't know what her problem is in the end. Those things really don't matter. What matters is that her womb up to this point has been completely lifeless, completely unable to become pregnant, completely desolate. This would have been a black mark upon this woman. Would have brought shame upon her. She would have been a disgrace in society. What is wrong with this woman? Why hasn't she had any children? She must have done something terrible for the Lord to have closed her womb. Why is she deserving of such a great punishment? Those are the whispers that are floating through the city of Zoar. But then the angel of the Lord appears to the woman, amazing, astounding, this is a great event to have the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord that is so closely associated with God's own presence, that those who encounter the angel of the Lord consider themselves to be in the very presence of God Himself. Here He is, and He gives her news. First, the bad news you are barren and you have not born children. I knew that. It's not too much of a message. What if you understand the pain that just digs it. it's like there's already a knife in my heart, and then it just, uh, twists it a little bit. Remember how hopeless your condition is. You are barren and you haven't had any children. The pain that's there. It's nothing new. This woman knew her condition. She knew her shame and her disgrace. And what does the angel of the Lord do? He says, I know it as well. I know your pain. I know your hopeless condition. I know what you are going through. And here's the good news you will conceive and bear a son. Woman, your lifeless, fruitless, desolate womb will bring forth life, it will bring forth fruit, it will be made full. This is nothing less than God superintending a supernatural birth as only He can do. He is the one in control of it. He is the one doing it. The only way that this can happen is if the Lord God Himself intervenes in a supernatural, miraculous, inexplicable, divine way. Here it is again. New life springing forth from a dead womb. There is no way this woman should be having a baby. How many times are we going to say that as we go through these accounts? And it is this new life that is supposed to change everything. It's this new life that's supposed to give hope where there is no hope. It's this life that's supposed to raise people up out of their despair because God superintended this supernatural birth. That's the reason why there's light for the future. There is a light that begins to shine upon the people. Just like Isaiah 9 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You people who are oppressed, you people who are despairing, you people who are miserable, look to this light. Look to this life supernaturally brought into this world by God. Something has to happen. Something has to change. And God is doing the very thing needed to bring us out of our oppression through a supernatural birth. It's the way it happens. Number two, God separates a special son God separates a special son. It's repeated three times in our chapters. Did you hear it when we read? You might wonder why it's repeated so many times. <laughs> the threefold repetition signifies its certainty. It solidifies the fact that this must happen. And what is it that has to take place? This son that's to be born, Samson, is to be a Nazarite. Not to be confused with the Nazarene, a Nazarite is a vow that was taken and you could go to Numbers chapter 6 and find all the details about it, but there are three stipulations associated with this vow that people would make. First, you're not supposed to eat anything off of the vine, particularly you're not to consume strong drink from the vine. Second, you're not, to supposed, you're not supposed to come into contact with a dead body to make yourself Unclean. And third, you're not supposed to cut the hair on your head. What is a Nazarite vow supposed to show, demonstrate? That this person is completely dedicated to God. That this person has been set apart as holy unto the Lord. They are separate, distinct, special from everyone else. Look at how even Samson's mother... who was carrying the child, had to do certain things while she was pregnant so as not to break the vow. The vow actually started before Samson was even brought out of the womb. Samson's mother would have to act in such a way because that would even affect him before he was born. There's a couple things, though, that are different in this account than from the Nazarite vow as it usually was taken. What's different is that usually it's voluntary. So usually people make this vow sometimes in their life. They want to make the vow, so they make the vow. Not so with Samson. He did not voluntarily sign up for this. God separated this child, this son of, named Samson, for himself even before he was born. Second, the Nazarite vow was usually only temporary. So you'd make the vow for a set amount of time, and then it would come to an end. For Samson, however, it would be a vow that he was to be under for his entire life. Samson was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb, or as the woman puts it, the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. It's interesting that Samson's mother, as she relays this information to Manoah, ends with that word death. It's foreshadowing the direction course of Samson's life this child separated by God as a special son would end up living a tragic life he would end up breaking all of the Nazarite vows in his life and in the end it would be the death of him what we have to understand about Samson's life is that even though he begins in this privileged position, it quickly goes downhill. (laughs) Samson's life is intended to be a mirror image of the nation of Israel. Both Samson and Israel are chosen by God and have a supernatural origin. It's not because of anything that they have done to deserve this choosing, or because they are somehow better, simply because God's grace chooses them. Both Samson and Israel are set apart. Both are to be distinct. And specifically, completely devoted to God. Both Samson and Israel are supernaturally strong. They are stronger than any ordinary man or any ordinary nation simply because God is with them. Not because they possess some great inherent strength in themselves. But both Samson and Israel end up being unfaithful. Samson breaks the Nazarite vows and has a weakness for foreign women. Israel, on the other hand, breaks the covenant vows it has made with God and has a weakness for foreign gods. Because of this, both lose their God-given strength, their God-given identity, and they have their eyes gouged out while finally being bound in chains. Samson bound by chains of the Philistines, Israel bound by the chains of those who would take them into exile. Samson, the one God had separated as a special son, does not live the way that he was supposed to live and serves as a warning for Israel. You live like this, it will not go well for you. But even in the life of Samson, there's a flicker of hope at the end. As his hair grows back, as he's in chains and imprisoned by the Philistines after he had his hair cut off, God strengthens Samson. When Samson humbles himself, dependent faith, he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord provides one last act of strength to deliver Israel. Samson sacrifices himself, and there is hope for a new day. A new day after being in chains and being in exile. Some hope of deliverance. This all points forward to the need of another special son who is separated. A son who does not fail like Israel failed, does not fail like Samson failed, but remain completely distinct and separate for God, perfectly obeying the covenant and completely righteous, who lived the life that we should have lived, who died the death that we deserve to die on the cross, sacrificing himself so that many might be made righteous and go free. It was this sacrifice that provides the hope of a new day after exile. And isn't this precisely why Jesus has come? Listen to Luke 14, or Luke 4 18, 19, and 21. Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then He says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's only this separated special Son who can do this for you and has done this for you if you have believed in Him. Number three. God saves through the seed of the woman. God saves through the seed of the woman. You notice reading through this account, something's missing. We know Manoah's name. Manoah's name, you hear Noah in it, has this meaning of rest, peace behind it. We know the name of Samson. But we never know Manoah's wife's name. It's absent from the account. Why is this? Is it because God didn't know her name? Is it because her name is unimportant? Is it to show how chauvinistic and patriarchal the society was and how they degraded and shamefully treated women? I don't think any of those reasons are good reasons as to why we don't know her name. But I do believe there is a reason (laughs) that we don't know her name, and I believe it's a better, more convincing explanation. God could have very well given us her name. After all, He gives us the name of many women in the Bible. Eve, Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, Miriam, Rahab, and the list goes on. I think the reason for not giving her name is seen in what she is called throughout this passage. More often than not, she is called the woman, or this woman. And hearing it over and over and over again is to prompt our memory to go back all the way to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve fell, they were cursed, but in the middle of that curse there was a glimmer of hope. We read this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel." There's the serpent and here's the woman. There's the seed or the offspring of the serpent and then there's the seed or the offspring of the woman. This verse highlights the great struggle that goes on between them, between those two. They're at war with each other, but it is through the seed of the woman that final hope and victory will come because the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent, will will strike that mortal, devastating blow upon the head of the serpent. And it will be the serpent's demise. And so why is Samson's mother called the woman? Because it is meant to remind us of this line of the seed of the woman. Because it is through this line that the final seed of the woman was to come. The seed of the woman is meant to be a savior. He's meant to be a deliverer. We even see this with Samson. Samson is meant to be a savior, a deliverer. Listen to what the angel of the Lord says about him. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Notice the word begin. The salvation that was to come by the hand of Samson was not complete salvation. It was not complete deliverance from the Philistines. It was only to be the beginning. He would not completely save. He would not finish the work and we know he doesn't finish the work because it's not long until we meet probably one of the most well-known Philistines ever Goliath and what happens to Goliath not until a young shepherd boy comes to Israel rescues them slays the giant cuts off Goliath's head and leads Israel into victory The work that Samson began to do in delivering them from the Philistines pointed forward to a better deliverer in King David. Who points us forward to an even better king, the new King David, King Jesus. And really, this is a major point in the book of Judges. To look forward to this king who would once and for all finally deliver God's people and rescue them and save them. That's what you want. You want a savior, you want a deliverer who will... Complete the work, who will do everything. You don't want him just to begin the work like Samson did. You want him to actually finish it. This is the longing that comes with the very last verse of the book of Judges, 21-25. Says this: In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What is the one singular problem the author of Judges pinpoints? The problem is that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. How much do we see that today? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. They say, don't tell me what I need to do. Don't tell me what I need to believe. Don't. Tell me how I should live my life. I'm doing what I believe to be right. I believe I know what is best. I believe that I alone am the sole standard for what is right and wrong and true and false. No one has the right to tell me how to live my life. Don't judge me. Truth is relative to me. You live your way. I will live my way. And we both are living rightly by our own standard and thinking. It's so tempting for us as Christians. We see people live like that. It's so tempting for us to say, stop it. Would you stop it? Would you stop living like that? Would you stop living and doing what's right in your own eyes? Stop thinking that you're the standard of morality. Stop living for yourself. Stop thinking that somehow you can be your own God. Stop doing what's right in your own eyes and do what's right in God's eyes. That's what you need to be doing. That's how you need to be living. It's tempting for us to say that, but I believe it misses the point, because we've disregarded the first half of the verse here in Judges 21:25. The problem really was there was no king. There was no king to lead them into doing what was right. There was no king to live before them and bring them to God. What happens when there is no king? Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The only remedy for that is for God to provide the right king. The king who will perfectly lead the people into doing what is right in God's eyes. How do people change so that they do not do what's right in their own eyes? It's not by yelling, stop it at them. It's by pointing them to the King, to King Jesus, the final King, who humbly leads us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for our King the one for who our sake died and was raised. If you don't get to King Jesus, if you don't believe in King Jesus, if you don't follow King Jesus, then it will feel like the whole world is a free for all and rightly so because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. It is only through King Jesus, the seed of the woman, who will finally and fully save people from their sins, from death and hell and the grave and make it so people no longer want to do what is right in their own eyes, but will only ever want to do what is right and true and pure in God's eyes. If you're doing what's right in your own eyes this morning, I'm not going to tell you stop it. I'm going to say, you need King Jesus. That's the only way you're ever going to be able to stop living for yourself. How about number four, quickly this morning? (laughs) God supplies his presence to secure our worship. God supplies his presence to secure our worship. Pull ourselves back to this text one more time. Highlight Manoah here for a moment. Manoah, how do I say this? Manoah is not presented to us as the sharpest tool in the shed. His wife has this beautiful visitation from the angel of the Lord. And she tells him about this. And then what does he do? I need to see it. Oh, Lord, let me see this. Have this man come back. And you notice there what he says. I want this man of God to come back. The, the woman is very astute in the sense, the angel of the Lord, this, this person who came to me, it was very awesome. It was very great. It was like the angel of God appeared to me. And what does Manoah, in a sense, say? It was probably just a man. Oh, Lord, please send this man back, this man of God. Please send him back. It's kind of emphasized there in his prayer and what he's thinking. And and even even when he prays, the Lord listens to his prayer and answers his prayer. And then where does the angel of the Lord go? He goes back to the woman. (laughs) What does the woman have to do? She has to go get her husband. Bring him. And she says, Manoah's wife says, The man who appeared to me is back. And then what does Manoah say when he is there and he meets the angel of the Lord? Are you the man who spoke to this woman? Manoah needs to listen to his wife, right? She just said that. Why are you asking that question? So Manoah says, are you, again, the man of God who spoke to this woman? And if you are, then... Tell us about this child who is to be born. What's the mission of his life? What's he supposed to do? What does the angel of the Lord say? Listen to your wife. (laughs) I've told her everything already. I told her what, what is going to happen to this child. I told him what the way of his life was going to be like. And then Manoah does something that's standard. He says to this guest who's come to them, he says, well, Let us prepare a meal for you. Let us give you something to eat before you go back, before you go away. And the angel of the Lord says, if you prepare a meal for me, I won't eat it. But if you make an offering, a burnt offering, that would be good. And what's interesting, in the course of this conversation about the meal and the burnt offering, Manoah has this sense to ask the angel of the Lord, what is your name? What's your name? What does the angel of the Lord say? I can't tell you my name. Why not? Because it's too wonderful for you. It's, in a sense, beyond understanding. You remember back last week, Sarah and Abraham, when God asked Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Same word, hard and wonderful, it's here. Is anything too, uh, too hard for the Lord? It's the same here as, my name is too wonderful, it's too hard for you to understand, it's beyond comprehension. And what? Manoah doesn't recognize that this is the angel of the Lord. I mean, even after that, even after the angel of the Lord says, you can't know my name, it's too wonderful, it's too great, it's beyond comprehension. Manoah doesn't get it yet, he still doesn't recognize it. But they go ahead and they make the burnt offering, and it's there that they're standing, and it says... The God is the one who works wonders and does something miraculous before their eyes, doesn't he? Here's the flame going up from the altar and all of a sudden, this person who's standing in front of them goes up in the flame and is gone. And what do do Minoah and his wife do? They fall down on their faces. They worship in a sense. They prostrate themselves and they realize something They recognize him then, don't they? They get it then. We've seen God. And and what does Manoah say? We're going to die. We're going to die. We're doomed to die. We've seen the Lord. (laughs) And again, Manoah's wife speaks the truth into Manoah's life. She doesn't even say the obvious. What's the obvious? Manoah, if God wanted to kill you, you'd be dead. But she speaks into his life and she says he hasn't killed us. He's accepted our offering. How are these things going to come true if we're dead? <laughs> the angel of the Lord, they saw this as God. I mean, in a sense, Manoah was right, right? Exodus 33, 20, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. Manoah had this in the back of his mind. But what's interesting is that When you go through God's word, how many people see God and live? (laughs) Jacob wrestled with God, and after he had wrestled with God, he lived. Moses spoke face to face with God, saw the Lord's backside, and lived. Earlier in Judges, Gideon was confronted by the same angel of the Lord. But the angel promises that he will not die, he will live. Isaiah Sees the Lord seated on the throne and says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Amazing how many people in God's Word see God and still live. And when they recognize that they are in His presence, what do they do? What must they do? They must worship. When you recognize you are in the presence of God, the only right and proper thing to do is to worship. But isn't this what God has done in sending His own Son? Do you remember what Philip asks Jesus in John 14? I'm sorry, what Philip asked Jesus in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. What does Jesus say? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the clear, visible representation of the invisible God. And what happens when you know the identity of Christ? What happens when you see that Christ is not just a man, but that He is God? What happens when you recognize that He is 100% God and 100% man, and He alone has the ability to finally and fully redeem and save mankind? What happens when you recognize that Jesus is the one who is the son of man, who was made lower for a while than the angels, who is crowned with glory and honor, where everything is being put in subjection under his feet? You worship. It's what the magi did when they found Jesus. It's what the disciples did after they saw Jesus walking on the water. It's what some soldiers did when they came to arrest Jesus, when they asked him When when he asked them who they were seeking, and he said, I am he, what did the soldiers do? They drew back, and they fell down on the ground, prostrating themselves before Jesus. They worshiped, because with those few simple words came the undeniable and uncontrollable recognition of Jesus as God, a very God, man a very man, the Son of God in human form. Recognize Jesus, and you will worship That is why he has come. That is why he has died. That's why he's risen again from the dead. Not only to save you, but to secure your worship of him. Because he alone is worthy to be worshipped. If you don't recognize Jesus, you can never worship rightly. You can never worship God the way that he's meant to be worshipped. That's why we pray. That's why we plead with people. Recognize Jesus. Don't miss it. Don't think that you can miss the identity of Jesus and still be saved and still have your life together and still not be in the miserable, despairing, doubting, oppressive state of life. You need to recognize who Jesus is and come to him and have the burden of sin removed from your life and be forgiven of all your sins and find new life. Let us not miss it. Let us not miss it, oh Lord. Let us not miss who you are. Let us recognize Jesus. (laughs) If ever there is a season to recognize who Jesus is, this is it. And As we recognize Jesus, let us worship. If there's someone here today who has recognized Jesus for the first time, has seen who He is, that He is God, that He's come to save us from our sins, that He's the one to be trusted and put our faith in, that today they would worship You for the first time like they've never worshipped before, because You've saved them, because You've rescued them. Would we ask in our own lives that we would not forget who Jesus is, We would not forget what He has done, but that we would see our identity as Christians, who we are, has been imprinted by the fact of who Christ is. May we grow in that identity, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.